Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. In partnership with Natural Intelligence Media, Eurovision, and the World Economic Forum, we produced a series of interviews offering depth and focus on the global challenges of our time. How to avert a global climate crisis, how to promote sustainable human development and global peace, how to create a new deal with nature, and how to advance innovative technology for good that serves humanity and the natural world. In exclusive interviews, world leaders in business, government, and civil society share their insights on the state of the planet, on measures taken to address these global challenges, and on future vision of a world committed to peace, justice, and prosperity for all. We're honored to have Naomi Oreskes with us here today. She's a professor of history and science at Harvard University. She speaks to us on a number of topics, including the universal agreement in scientific community on the reality of climate change, organized disinformation to discredit climate change, and the internet as a pointer to peer-reviewed, scientifically vetted information, rather than an information source itself vulnerable to corruption. I'm here with Naomi Orskis, the Professor of History of Sciences at Harvard University. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Can you tell us something, given your background and your work in looking at distorted conversations around different vested interests on issues, you know, in a world where so many vested interests are distorting the conversation to shape our policies, how are these perverted ideas, thoughts, shaping the narrative that we're working to craft going forward around shaping the new architecture for sustainability, for nature, for humanity? I'm a historian of science, and I started my career focused on the question of how scientists know what we say we know. How do scientists judge evidence? What kinds of arguments do they bring to bear? And how do scientists come to consensus on contested issues? And for a long time, I really saw that as a question in science. It was a question about understanding how science works and how we know the things we know. But about 15 years ago, I discovered that there was a sort of strange conversation going on around climate change. Within the scientific community, there was essentially no argument that man-made climate change driven by greenhouse gases was underway and that its consequences would be largely adverse and possibly really dreadful. Yet in the public conversation, the news media, politicians, business leaders were presenting it as a big argument, a big contested issue that we didn't really know what was happening And the vice president of the United States at the time even said that there was no consensus on climate change. And when I heard that on the news media, I thought, well, that's really weird because all the scientists I know seem to have a consensus. But then I thought, well, you know, maybe I just live in a strange place. Maybe I'm in a particular academic bubble. So I decided to undertake a study to analyze what was the consensus of scientific opinion as measured by what scientists were publishing in peer-reviewed scientific journals, because that's the coin of the realm in science. And what I discovered was that my instincts, my impressions were correct, but even more so that, in fact, there was virtually complete unanimity in the scientific community. So I published that article in 2004, and then something very strange happened. I started getting hate mail. I started getting threatening phone calls. I was attacked on the floor of the U.S. Senate by a senator from Oklahoma, 
In fact, I got a phone call one day from a journalist in Oklahoma who said, are you aware that Senator Inhofe has just attacked you on the floor of the U.S. Senate? And I said, Senator who? (laughs) I think it was like early April, because I remember thinking, is this an April Fool's joke? So it was a kind of Alice through the looking glass moment, where I'm doing this rather serious intellectual work, trying to understand what scientists think and why they think, and what is the evidence, and I'm reading about ice cores and coral reefs and the cryosphere and you know, climate modeling, a lot of pretty technical stuff, and now I'm being attacked by a U.S. senator. So, long story short, my husband always says they made a mistake when they attacked a historian because (laughs) I decided to try to figure out what was the history here. Who are these people, and why would a U.S. senator attack... You know, I I don't want to say that I was a completely obscure person up until then. I was a pretty successful academic, but, I mean, I was an academic, right? I I don't think I ever published an op-ed piece or anything like that before. So I started digging into it, and what I found was this amazing and frankly terrifying story about organized, systematic, professional disinformation whose purpose was to discredit the science related to climate change, to make us think that we didn't really know that this was a problem in order to prevent action. And that coordinated campaign was a kind of unholy alliance between the fossil fuel industry, which you might expect, so that wasn't so surprising. But what was a little more surprising was that they had made an alliance with conservative and libertarian think tanks who were fighting climate change, not really to protect the profits of the fossil fuel industry, but to preserve a libertarian ideology of free market economics, a kind of ideology that glorified the marketplace, deified the marketplace, insisted that markets were magic, and demonized government, and demonized government in order to prevent regulation. And I found that these think tanks, although they took their inspiration from serious intellectuals like Friedrich von Hayek, they were funded by regulated industries. And so we started studying that, looking into it, and then we found what was kind of the big reveal which was that they were the same people who had worked with the tobacco industry to cast out on the science about tobacco. And then, just one more piece, we saw that there was a whole story of a whole set of different issues, starting with tobacco and running through acid rain, the ozone hole, and now climate, and the same people, the same organizations, and the same arguments being used over and over again. So the same disruptors have been in this dialogue around the environment and protecting our natural assets opposed to essentially their corporate assets for a very long time. We just, it's been under the wire. It's been something that you brought attention to. And in doing so, then (laughs) (laughs) quite the impact. Right. So So we published that, Joy, as a book that was called called Merchants of Doubt. It came out in 2010. So a little shocking and depressing to mm-hmm. me to realize that we're heading up to the 10th anniversary. Uh, we made a documentary film about it that came out in 2014. So, I mean, this has already been going on for you know, 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. uh, but now here we are nearly 10 years later. And of course, you know, we like to think that our book has made an intervention, that people are more aware of the issue now, but it's still going on. Well, as the theme of this conference is shaping a new architecture and a focus on the fourth industrial revolution, we have now all these different digital technologies that help amplify sort of human activity. I know in the session that you hosted uh, species extinction, it came up that social media can yeah, obviously be used to amplify the messages the environment that we care about. But it sounds like we need to also be very concerned about how it's amplifying messages that distort that conversation. So... If you were to write a new book for this 
day and age. How would you address the creation of social media and the attention to putting security measures around the kinds of conversations that are having? Well, I am writing a new book. It's not about social media, but we can talk about that more in a minute if, if we have time. But in terms of social media, I think that it's pretty clear that in terms of the issues that I work on, the net impact of social media has been deeply negative. And by that, I don't just mean Twitter and Facebook, but just the internet, the whole phenomenon of the way in which disinformation can be put on the internet so easily and how it can spread like wildfire and how incredibly difficult it is to correct disinformation once it's out there because it's kind of like on the internet, disinformation is forever. And there's no question that we have seen huge dissemination of faulty information, lies about climate scientists. Uh, one climate scientist I know has told this terrifying story Scientists always worry about being quoted out of context or being misquoted. It's a big anxiety for scientists, and it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that many scientists are reluctant to speak to the media. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that what scientists do is complicated. Often scientists don't explain it well, so journalists like yourself are kind of forced to you know, summarize it or shorten it, and then it doesn't always come out the way scientists like. But that problem, which scientists think of as being so central for them, pales into insignificance compared to the deliberate falsification of information that is on the internet. And so this one example, a colleague I know here in Switzerland, uh, had the experience of being asked by a journalist why he had said a particular thing that seemed a bit surprising. And he said, well, I never said that. And I said, oh, yes, you do. It's here on this interview on the internet. And it was a totally fabricated interview. So this was an article yeah. that claimed to be interviewing him complete with photos and video clips that had obviously been managed managed or plagiarized or photoshopped with this interview and it was completely fabricated. This is what's actually extraordinary in sort of the next iteration of social media that you're able to now take out of context without the real person's knowing the text, the conversation with the voice and also with the video clips manipulate the, the narrative. So I mean, what can we trust anymore, and, and how, how can the science community step up and, and sort of be ambassadors for a new narrative, or how can we use the trusted voices in the science community to, to course correct or to yeah. filter out this noise? So my new book is about this, so thank you for the opportunity to make a shameless plug. <laughs> so my new book is called Why Trust Science, and really the article is about the processes that scientists use to evaluate and vet evidence. And so essentially what I argue is that we have to return in a way to a, an older model about verified sources. The famous sociologist uh, Robert Merton famously said that science is certified knowledge and that scientists have these processes of certification, peer review, debates at meetings, publication in reputable venues, scientific societies like the Royal Society or the National Research Council in the United States or that publish peer-reviewed, vetted reports, we have to return to those traditional sources, and we have to recognize that the internet is not actually a source of scientific information. It can be a source for communicating scientific information. So if the Royal Society issues a report, they can post it on the web, and they can use social media to point people back to those sources. But that's what it's got to be. It's got to be a pointer. I like to think of Twitter as, I call it my electronic town crier. 
a lot of what I tweet links to new reports, new data, new information from trusted, vetted sources. So instead of scientists creating content on the web, on different social media sources, to always have that key source which is linked to the guidelines, the rigor of the scientific community that has been vetted through a scientific process. Exactly. So that we're actually linking back to the core source. I think that's a really good strategy for those of us that are in the scientific community that are wanting to ensure that our voice is not somehow distorted. So how do we communicate to the public that this is what the scientific community is doing, that this is where you find the real information and, and maybe segregate that core knowledge base from a social media platform where you have these kinds of discussions? How do we create that wall? Well, we have to talk about it, even though it might not be sexy, it might not be easily reduced to a soundbite, but we have to, I think, on some level, resist the temptation to reduce our arguments to soundbites. So for my book, my editors and I sat down and we thought, well, we can have a soundbite title. The title is Why Trust Science? Question mark. So it's a nice short title, but if you ask me for the answer, I'm not going to say, I can't answer that in three words. I've done my best to keep the book pretty short. It's under 200 pages, not too many footnotes. Lots of pictures. Uh, not a lot of pictures, a couple of cartoons. Um, ah, there you go. Have a couple of cartoons and no jargon, jargon-free. So, you know, we can make an effort to communicate clearly, but, you know, people have to make an effort to listen. And one of my students one time after a class where I was explaining my ideas about this, she said, so what you're really saying is scientists have to be better communicators, but we have to be better listeners. Mm. And I thought that was so brilliant because in this day and age, there's a way in which we often allow our audiences to be lazy or we assume that our audiences are lazy and a producer and editor will say, oh, nobody will read a 200-page book or nobody will listen to a 45-minute talk. But actually, it's not true. In my experience, people are hungry for good information so long as you try to be nice about it, you try to be kind, you need to be kind to your audience, don't you know, flood them with jargon. Don't try to impress them with how smart you are. Use common language that people can understand. Right. Maybe draw parallels to their reality, their exactly. world. Connected to their lives. Use language that they can understand. And like I always say, you know, we were talking earlier about the Be Kind t-shirt. As a writer, I always think, I want to be kind to my reader. I want to make this a good experience for my reader. But my reader will have to do a little bit of work as well. I'm going to meet them halfway, but that's exactly it. I can't go 99% of the way. That just doesn't work. And maybe writing with the, the head and the heart as well. Because you're, when you're passionate about something, it, it really it comes through so authentically and in such a way that you're able to much better communicate and listen and learn. And I would also say for the audience, I think we, we also don't um, give them the opportunity to critically think Right. forward so to actually evaluate what they're reading from their own experience and so how do we inspire people to speak from their own experience to not be so caught up in groupthink, to feel that we are empowered to express our views based on our world that we're not going to be attacked you know this is right. another part of the whole social media uh, let's say the dark side is that if you really do have something compelling to say we're so unkind those of us mm. that don't agree with that perspective instead of respecting you know, this is your experience. Thank you for that perspective. You've made me think for a minute. Maybe I'm not going to convert to your ideas, but, you know, instead of some hateful comment, how no. do we reduce the amount of hate? And like you said, the first thing you received was hate mail yeah. when you started to challenge some vested interests that may not actually see a, a new vested opportunity mm -hmm. in, a, a, you know, a new paradigm that could be created 
Well, I think this last point is the key one. And honestly, you know, sometimes people say, oh, everybody's hateful. And in my experience, that's not true. In my experience, the hateful piece is a very, very small part. And I just don't engage with that. You know, people are upset, people are unhappy. You know, there's not a lot I can do about that other than the thing you just said at the end of your question, which is really crucial, is to talk about the opportunity. A lot of people are afraid of climate change. It's upsetting because what they hear is the message, your way of life is bad, therefore you're a bad person. And they think that's what environmentalists are saying. And nobody wants to be told they're a bad person. So when I give public lectures, I often stress, look, when we started burning fossil fuels, we didn't know that it was going to destroy the planet. And you know, there was a lot that was good about fossil fuels, and there's a lot that came out that has been good about using this resource to build the world as we know it. But now we know some things that we didn't know before. So it's not our fault that we made those choices in the past, but going forward, we need to make some different choices. And we can make those different choices because, in fact, the technologies exist to do that. And so if you present it as, okay, we all make mistakes, you know, uh, it wasn't your fault, but... Now there's a choice, and there are some really good choices out there. And then I can talk about renewable energy and storage. And the other part of this, of course, it gets back to it's not always a soundbite. I've been doing a lot of work on the history of electricity, and one of the things we know from scientific and technical work now is that one of the keys to increasing the use of solar energy, renewable energy, at least in the United States and Europe where we have large-scale grids, is something called grid integration, which mm -hmm. means like finding a better way to make the different parts of the grid work together. Mm -hmm. So if we have you know, sunshine in Arizona, we can move that solar power to Oklahoma or whatever. And so when I talk in public, I'll sometimes say, okay, so I need to talk to you about something really sexy. It's grid integration, <laughs> you know? It's like, and of course, you know, nobody came to my talk thinking that they were gonna learn about grid integration, but now I've got my audience, and now right. they're listening, because they want to know there's a solution, and now they know there is, but it's going to take a little bit of time, a few minutes to explain what grid integration is, why it matters, and how we could get it. And how potentially economically viable it could be for every individual. I know Correct. not to move too much into a, a tech conversation, but you know, for blockchain, it's one of the applications. You know, how can we create this distributed ledger that identifies different, you know, the value exchange of not just money, but actually energy among right. different players, and how can the individuals within this integrated system benefit from this? And right. so it gets me very excited to think about this kind of a narrative right. where we're actually forward-thinking in a Tesla-like way, energy access for Absolutely. all. And so I can only imagine that if we kept the narrative focused more in this positive direction and the opportunities and optimism and hope for the future. And, and I guess in inclusive for all, even those naysayers or, or those they that are... They could benefit. They right. could benefit if, yeah. if perhaps um, they would listen to the kinds of we're, we're narratives all, that we're wanting to start right. shaping. We're all going to benefit from cheaper, cleaner electricity. I spend a lot of time in Utah. I have a lot of friends there and I ski there. There is unbelievably bad air pollution in Salt Lake City now. And people there are suffering. Asthma rates are skyrocketing. So people there are open to hearing, look, there's another form of energy. It's going to be cheaper and it's going to be cleaner. Why would you not want that, right? So, but then you have to make the case. And the, and the other thing you have to do is to explain that 
yes, this technology exists, but it's not going to happen by itself. Grid integration and some of these other things rely on the correct policies. And right now we have a set of policies that were designed to foster the fossil fuel economy. And again, many of these policies made sense 50, 75, 100 years ago, but they don't make sense now. And so now we have to change, we have to get rid of the perverse incentives, stop subsidizing fossil fuels. And this is another thing I found. Most Americans have the impression that renewable energy is massively subsidized. They think fossil fuels aren't, and so they say, I don't want the government subsidizing renewables. I'm like, well, actually, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. For every dollar of subsidy of renewables in America, 10 or more for fossil fuels, Still. right? Still, even today, massive. Globally, I mean, the World Bank, IMF, have done big studies globally. Something like six to $700 billion every year in just direct subsidies to fossil fuels, and that doesn't even include the environmental costs, the social cost of carbon. So this is equivalent to the Troubled Asset Recovery Program in the United States. It's a massive, massive amount of subsidizing of an industry that is doing huge damage. So why would we want to continue doing that? For anyone's well-being. For anyone's well-being, correct. Right. 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 You hosted a panel on species extinction, and although humans were not at the center of that discussion, are we really at that key tipping point where in this age of the Anthropocene or so where we are, as humans, having a planetary scale effect on the planet, are we really at a point where the decisions we make now matter and we need to really consider are we, as a species, going to adapt, migrate, or become extinct? Because we can't really migrate anywhere else on Earth. Right. Space is not a place where we can live. And so, you know, our last point is of extinction, unless we are able to create this new economy that is not only sustainable, but at this point, I guess, also regenerative. Mm -hmm. So, actually, species extinction is all about people. I mean, nature will persist, and yet it just won't look the same way in a new paradigm, or humanity may not have, our species may not have the ability to adapt to that system, that new paradigm that we're tipping toward. So could you talk to this, how important is it to link all these issues back to our, our health, our well-being, our persistence as a species? This was the key message of our session on extinction, and I think in many ways it was actually the key message of all of the sessions here at Davos that dealt with sustainability, that this is about people. This isn't about the planet out there. The planet is going to go on for billions more years with or without us, but it's about us, and it's about the quality of the life we live, how we live on this planet, and whether we live happy, healthy lives or whether we live degraded and depressed lives, and on so many levels, both the practical levels of the way we rely on the natural environment for food, for pollinators, for materials, fabrics, for our clothing. I mean, so much of what we depend on, so much of global GDP comes out of the natural environment, uh, soils, water, everything. So we can't exist without the environment. The environment is our home, it's our life. So I think one of the key things that's come out of this meeting is a clearer message about it's not about the environment out there and us in here. No, we are in the environment and the environment is in us. And also that these issues that are often seemed as viewed as different, climate change, uh, the oceans, plastic in the ocean, sustainability, water issues, biodiversity conservation, public health, these are not separate issues. Right. These are all one issue. And they all have to do with our interrelationship with nature and protecting our home, protecting the planet, which is our home. This is absolutely brilliant. You know, the 
and I'll just end with this, the, the root word for home, or I should say the root word for economy and ecology oh, ethos, yeah. is ecos, right. and it means home. Right, household management. Yeah, economics is the rules of household management. Right, home, ecos is home, right. Ecos is home, and right. ecology is the study of our home. So they, you know, back to the importance of science to help us keep understanding how we're having an impact on an environment how it operates and the system that we're disrupting. Mm -hmm. It's really important to get back to that Oikos, like you said, home concept where we can marry economy and ecology. Exactly. And why would any sane person burn down their house? Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Naomi. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you for joining us every Wednesday and Friday morning at 9 a.m. GMT. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you.